Thank you to our sponsors for supporting this episode of Troxel, Arc IT, BQE Core, and Avail. We'll share more about them later on in the episode. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. This is the podcast where I have a conversation with guests from the architectural community and beyond to talk about the coevolution of architecture and technology. In this episode, I welcome Keith Huser. Keith is a third-generation builder-turned-owner-representative and advocate. He's a principal at Peak Projects in Los Angeles, where it's their mission to provide exceptional owner's representation and proactive project management services to today's most discerning leaders and innovators. In this episode, we discuss the topics of owner representation and advocacy, the importance of speaking the design, construction, and owner's languages, the highly sought-after position of being a trusted advisor, getting pushed out of one's comfort zone, finding joy in the process of a project and a career, the three types of project managers, And it's the first time on this podcast we really dive into the owner's perspective. I think that can be really valuable to the audience of AEC. So without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Keith Huser. Keith, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Evan, thank you so much. It's really great to be here. So Keith, you are um, an owner's rep, and I, I want to weave this story together to, to figure out how you got to where you are. And in order to do that, you are, like I told you, the first person kind of on that side of the table on this podcast. And so you have you have the weight of the world on your shoulders now. Everybody's everybody's going to be intently listening. But I think it, it's a great perspective to have because one of the things that um, you know this show is about the coevolution of technology and architecture slash the built environment. And as a means to the end, though, it's not why we do what we do. I think maybe for some people it is, but I think ultimately, big picture wise, and if we think about this as as generalist for a moment, at least we are here to serve the people who pay to do these projects. It is for them. And it's, there's a lot of people involved in the process along the way. This stuff is built by hand and ultimately for people. So I think that you bring an important perspective to the table as an owner's rep and probably a lot of insight. And I think to me, that's something that this whole audience could use a dose of because you are in the trenches seeing how owners react to communication styles, design process, construction process, decision-making, all of these things along the way. So before we get to that point, I, I wanted to kind of front load it with that to, to tell people why they need to stick around for this, because this is an important perspective. Tell us how you got to this point on your journey. Well, you know, to reiterate what you just said, it is, it is all very important. Um, and, and to recap, you know, understanding how a, an owner communicates and receives information is, is immensely important. And I think 
on my path and my journey, you know, I, I grew up on a construction site. My, my father was a custom home builder in Indiana, um, from Indianapolis, Indiana, Naptown, as they call it, and was working alongside my father and a number of my brothers and really, you know, came to find home and peace on a construction site. It's a very chaotic, you know, messy, uh, you know, depending on the site, unorganized process. And my father, to his credit, was very, very organized, very detail-oriented, and really grew up, you know, in, in his shadow, working on these intricate projects. And, you know, my brothers and I, we, we've self-performed a number of the trades. I came up as a finished carpenter, you know, really, really learned from, from my dad. And a number of my uncles as well spent a summer as an apprentice in a cabinet shop in Beach Grove, Indiana with my uncle Jim. And, um, you know, to, to go even deeper on that, my grandfather was a, a builder and a machinist and uh, owned a machine shop on the south side of Indianapolis through the 60s and 70s and 80s. And, um, you know, was a very, very successful entrepreneur and built a number of, of his own homes. So, you know, it, it's really in, in my blood and in my DNA that our last name is actually Huser loosely translates in German to Hauser, which is provider of shelter. So that's awesome. You know, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's in yeah. your DNA. Yeah. It's in my <laughs> DNA. Um, let's, let's do a digression here. I think this is a, this is cool stuff because I've also grown up as a builder and a maker, but much more on the do it yourself side. And I, I, and that comes from my father and my grandfather as well. Like my, my garage is full of tools. I try to find ways to justify my ownership of them all the time because most of the time they're like an automobile. They sit in the driveway, right? They sit in the garage waiting to be used and man, there's some awesome stuff in there and I'm looking for opportunities to use it. But growing up in a family of builders is not something that I've experienced and haven't really had that storytelling time on this show so so coming like thinking about it from my perspective right i've got a garage full of tools but when when tools and making and carpentry is your business what what is that like well painstaking but very very rewarding you know in in indiana we we had a i guess it was a farm if you will and, and my father had a, a ten thousand square foot steel building and it was full of any this is like my dream <laughs> <laughs> it it was you know any any device to 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 conceptually think of anything you was there at our fingertips you know and i i remember some of my earliest memories working for my my uh my father and and earning my allowance was cleaning out the the metal lathe and it was a it was not a small woodworking lathe it was you know 3 or 4 ton piece of equipment where you could machine any any type of spinning metal that you could surmise. And I remember getting down in there and cleaning out all the metal shavings with an old broken dustpan and cleaning everything. Kerosene was the the smell that comes to mind, you know, really really just cleaning it. And and I think back now <laughs> it was drudgerous work. But but it really, you know, then I got the moments when I was done, 
I got to stand to the side with a, you know, a face mask on and, and watch my father and my grandfather go to work and create something that, you know, they were creating something that had never existed before. Yeah. Raw materials to finished object. Like that's just an incredible process. Yes. And, and I think the most joyous part of it was the presence that, that was there. You know, the, the feeling that you get in creating a hat where there was no hat, right? That, that resonance in, in my father and my grandfather's work was just, was just incredibly valuable. And I think, you know, being the student, you have to do the treasury and the, the cleaning of the metal shavings, et cetera. But then you're afforded these brilliant opportunities to, to learn and take in something that, that you, you can't be taught really in a school to soak um, up. Yeah. And, and to have, you know, a kind father and a kind grandfather to, to stop and pause in the middle of their work and explain to you what they're doing and why they're doing it. Those, those are the, the moments that um, were just invaluable, just invaluable as, as a young man um, and, and coming into my youth. And, you know, my, my brothers and I had so many of our own ideas and let's build this or let's do that. And uh, it was just a really great place to grow up and to experiment with a built environment in a very nurturing environment with my grandfather and my father and, and my family members. And it's such a valuable piece of the puzzle, it, the actual making, right? There's, there is the design process, which is very separate from the making process. And there's so much encapsulated knowledge in the process of making that designers should, or I don't know, it would be advantageous to know about <laughs> those, those I things. Think absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it translates, it's interesting because, you know, now that I'm thinking about this, this element translates into the work that I do now, you know, one of the, the largest frustrations with clients that I've experienced, and, you know, maybe you have as well, and some of the listeners have too, is a patron will say that they understand what's conceptually designed, and then it gets built. They had no idea. And they're like, what is this? <laughs> this is not what I signed off on. <laughs> it's like, actually, y- y- you did, you know, actually you have. And so in the making part uh, of the experience, you really begin to understand that even when you conceptualize something, creating it, it may turn out just a little bit different, better or worse sometimes. And so, you know, taking that insight and sharing it with a patron or a client and saying, you know, I want to narrow this gap. I want to make sure that you understand the concept is the concept, but the formal shape that this may take might be slightly different. Also, in narrowing that gap is finding the extra tools and techniques, mock-ups, you know, drawings, real-life renderings. Now we have 3D modeling um, where you can get something so photorealistic for a, a client to look at. But it's really taking those experiences of creating something physically and then introducing it to someone who is is really making such a substantial investment in in what often is a work of art. You know, the the projects we get to work on are these one-offs that's never been done. So it's making sure that they understand this is what we think it's going to be like and this is what we think it's going to be. But the process of actually creating it 
will also bring in intricacies that may be better, right? They, they may be different. And you have to be patient and understanding and trust that the, the collaborators, the craftsmen, the creators, the designers, the architects, the engineers are all doing their best to, to make it what, what we're all anticipating and to really give them, give them rain to, to use their genius in a, in a present moment state. Because that's again, going back to the creating with my family members was like, it was a very present moment status and ensuring our patrons are allowing the designers and the team to be in their present moment status to create is, is just immensely important to get into that flow state where that genius can happen. Right. Yeah. And that doesn't necessarily happen. I don't know want to say on a schedule. You know what I mean? Like it's <laughs> on some levels it has to happen on a schedule, but it, <laughs> everything's but, always schedule based, but right? Free there's, from there's... distraction, free from uh, these other outside influences that could have a negative effect and, and uh, enable that genius to happen when it needs to happen in the best way that it possibly can right then. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Well, I interrupted you. I, I <laughs> your, your journey yeah. to owner's rep, but I, I think that's a worthy discussion. I, there was one point I was doing design build and I was brought up as a, my, everything, my, every problem my father and his, his father solved was with a table saw basically. Uh, and so I really grew up heavy on the wood side of things. And then when I was doing design build, my partner was a steel guy. And so we, you know, crossed the streams and I taught him wood and he taught me steel and it just opens up a whole new world when you learn a new vocabulary like that and how you can solve problems with different materials in different ways and achieve different, you know, different types of constraints that can be overcome with each one that are beneficial to each one independently is, it's really interesting. And so to think about like your, your father's shop and the ability to have free reign with a lot of these tools with working with different materials, steel and, and wood and all these things. And man, it's just that to me is like the ultimate playground to have a, a space where you can do that because that's in, the other constraint is having the space to fabricate these things is a key element that a lot of people don't have. Like you end up building something out in the driveway, which is not flat and level and it's not, you know, protected from the elements and all these things. And, and you kind of have to have that dedicated space to, to make those things as well. Yes. And, and the time, you know, right. I, I guess <laughs> as you, as you become older and an adult and, you know, your family grows, your responsibilities grow, you have, you know, sometimes less time to, to do those. And I just always had the time to do it in that stage of my life. But, um, it was, it was a great, it was a great place to grow up and, Went off to college, got a got a degree in in uh, English and Spanish at uh, Butler University, in my hometown. Um, didn't didn't know what I was going to do when I graduated school, and worked worked for a small commercial construction company straight out of college, and had finished a couple historic renovations, and it was it was very rewarding. But I was you know I was twenty one. I had the the world was my oyster, as they say, and I needed to prove myself that I was different than my family name. So I kind of, I did quite a bit of swimming upstream. You can't fight the DNA, Keith, like this. I can, I can, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm doing a little foreboding. Here. Like, like this is just, I can tell this isn't going to end well. 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, everything that you, you know, incur in your life and encounter is an opportunity for experience and to learn. Yeah. Um, So I I went into medical sales uh, of all things and worked in medical sales for a number of years. And I'm, I'm not by nature a very outgoing person. And, you know, my, my first go at sales was challenging. You know, uh, the very first job I had out of college, other than construction, was door-to-door business-to-business sales. And it was 50 doors a day, you know, knocking on doors. And that, that was even before medical sales. That was uh, internet services. And it was very challenging. But it put me out of my comfort zone. Challenging to convince people to get out of the yellow pages and onto the internet. (laughs) Yes, yes. Um, But immensely, immensely useful now, right? Uh, Looking back, I can connect the dots and see the experiences from that and and apply it to what what I'm doing now because it pushed me out of my comfort zone, helped me learn to communicate even better with individuals and and just meeting them from knocking on a door and, and... them affording me the opportunity to come into their office and spend two or three minutes of their time unsolicited, you know, and talking to them about their phone and internet service. Um, that led to medical sales, which led to software sales. And um, I was just, I, I kept coming back to construction projects on the weekends and was making furniture and, you know, doing, doing all sorts of anything I could kind of find to, to, quench that thirst. And in my mid twenties, I was like, what, what am I, what am I doing? Why, why am I fighting the the flow? Why am I fighting my, my family's good name? And, you know, what is inherently in inside of me? So I, I left the sales world and went back to construction. And, you know, I took a number of jobs working as a, as a floor installer, a cabinet apprentice, a, a framer, you know, a window installer, um, and did it all around the the Mountain West. Um, worked in Jackson Hole for a couple years, then worked in Park City uh, for a builder there, uh, and really just enjoyed it. But having the sales background and you know a kind of a thirst for for more development and more understanding of why things were the way that they were, instead of just doing it, I kept searching for a little bit more. And had reconnected with with now my wife, uh, who I had met previously in California. She was in L.A. and you know works in the entertainment industry, and said, "Well, if if you want to be with me, we we gotta we gotta do it in L.A." So I moved to L.A. and uh, you know we got married, and a year later, you know she was pregnant. We wanted to to bring a, a child into the world. And I thought, okay, I have to get a big boy job now. You know, I was doing, I was doing kitchen and bathroom remodels for friends and it was word of mouth and it was referral based and, and it was good work and I enjoyed it. But I was, I was at a point in my life where I thought I, I need, I need to do something bigger for my legacy. Then I, I, I cold called. I took my my selling skills from my phone and internet sales days, and I started cold calling job sites in Beverly Hills. I came across uh, a, a gentleman by the name of Chester, and Chester was an <laughs> older gentleman, had been working in construction for clearly all of his adult life, and he said, "You know, well, come 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 back here. It's on Rodeo Drive." 
And he said, come, come back here and let me, let me sit you down. Let me tell you how it is. Right. And he's like, you're, you're a nice young man and you seem really happy. You don't want to do this. (laughs) 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 This is is a thankless job. This is a hard job. You know, you don't want to do this. He did everything he could to, to talk me out of it. And you know, I, I said, well, I, I appreciate your candor with me, but I do want to do this and I'm about to have a baby and this is a, a very big step in my life. So, you know, is there any opportunity with your firm? And he gave me the the phone number for the owner and I, I called him and we set up a, an interview, you know, a couple of weeks later and, and, you know, we had an interview and, and I sat down with Dan McGee, who, who was very much a mentor figure for me for the last half a dozen years of my life um, and really grounded me and, and pushed me. And we interviewed and he said, you know, what are you looking for out of this opportunity? And I said, well, I want your job. You know, and this is Dan. Dan is a very successful builder in, you know, West LA and probably has a billion dollars worth of custom residential estates in, in his you know, portfolio. <laughs> so I'm sure he kind of looked at me and thought, who, who the hell do you think you are? You young punk, you know, <laughs> you want my job, you can do my job. And, uh, but he gave me a shot. He gave me a shot and he, he put me on a project with his younger brother and Terry and I worked for a very challenging, very wealthy client who played a bit of cat and mouse with me. Um, his, his game was always to see what I could commit to and then what I could deliver and what the Delta was. And, you know, he, he had us working on a 35,000 square foot estate in Holmby Hills and it was gorgeous. And there was, there was virtually nothing that needed to be changed about this house. It was a jewel box, but he wanted to leave his mark on it. And he wanted to use his, his time and money to, to make changes to it. And, and far be it for me to tell him that he shouldn't. And he put me through a year of just the most grueling construction sprints <laughs> I've ever encountered in my life. You know, how much money can you spend a month? How many people can you have on site? You know, but I was fortunate for the opportunity. And he was he was a very uh, challenging client, but we understood each other. And I I was just very clear with him. I will do the very best I can with the time and money that you afford me. And I'll always be honest with you and tell you when I don't think it's feasible or possible, but that I'll try. And his goal was always to push me out of my comfort zone. And my goal was always to give him a dose of reality because I don't think he was getting much of it. And it was a great opportunity. And, uh, you know, in, in that year was promoted, started as a superintendent, was promoted to a project manager had actually been solicited by that client to come and work for them to, to manage their properties across, you know, North America. Um, and I was, you know, a new father and that was an immense opportunity for me with a insurmountable uh, amount of money put in front of me. And it just, I just knew that I, I would be required to travel at a moment's notice and wanted to watch my, my daughter, you know, grow in the first couple years of her life and that I would never be able to get that time back. So I turned him down. I turned the client down. And at the same time, uh, JD Group was going through a transition. The previous vice president had left, moved back to Florida to be with his family. 
And uh, in that transition, Dan called me and, you know, I told him, hey, I just got a really big job offer to to do this. You know, I, I don't, it's, it's honestly too still too early for me to decide. My head was spinning. You know, it was something that I was not anticipating. And he said, well, I wanted to throw an offer by you, you know, or throw something by you. You know, our previous vice president has, has since left. Would, would you be interested in stepping into that, those shoes? Because he, he remembered our initial interview. You know, you said that you wanted to do my job. This is, this is the next step. <laughs> here, here you go. Here's your opportunity. So I, I slept on it. I, I talked to my wife about it. And, you know, we, we both agreed that sticking with that was, was a better path for me. And so I did it. And, and I spent um, almost five years in that seat driving new business, uh, acting as a project executive for JD Group, building out the business, bringing in, you know, technology, uh, a project management platform, you know, taking what the previous vice president did and trying to build an add-on to it and, you know, really taking a legacy company and making it more new age. Modernizing um, it, yeah. Exactly. You know, taking what I had seen that was already there and just trying to leave my mark as best I could and make it uh, um, better. Um, and Dan and I had talked, you know, round and round about me being the minority owner by the time I was 40 and by the time I was 45 being the, the majority owner. And I, you know, we always kind of, it was like a game of chicken, I think, with him. And you know, I, I think to his credit, he's just such a, a good leader and a good builder. I don't know if he's ever going to be ready to completely let go Step until away. he has to. Right. Yeah. And I, and I don't, I don't discount him for that. I, I really respect it actually. Um, but in that process, I think it was, you know, heavy, heavy pandemic and a recruiter had reached out to me and, and said, Hey, I've got a, an owner's rep firm out of San Francisco that's looking for a project manager. And I said, huh, that's, that's interesting. I haven't thought about that role. You know, I hadn't, hadn't considered that role for myself. And I said, yeah, no, no, thanks. I'm, I'm good. Actually, I'm on my path. I got my blinders on right now. You know, I'm the vice president of a very, you know, successful custom home construction company. And, you know, I'm, I'm working, uh, on my succession plan and, you know, really appreciate you reaching out, but I'm, I'm very happy. And, you know, he was diligent and good and circled back a couple times. And finally, you know, in, in talking with my wife, she encouraged me. She's like, well, you should remain open. You should have the conversation. You just don't know what, what it could lead to. So I said, you know what, let's, let's have a call. Let's talk as an owner's rep would to uh, a builder we can maybe meet each other instead of it being a job interview. It's just an interview to work together, um, to be a builder and, and an owner's rep. And they set up a call and I met Grant Bowen, um, my business partner now. And we just had a, a conversation as old friends would have a conversation about the industry that we're working in and what projects looked like and what was fun about the projects we worked on. And, you know, Grant is a fellow Midwesterner. He's from Michigan. Um, so we just kind of hit it off. And I, I told him in the first call, I was like, well, look, I've got, I, I took this call just to meet you. This is kind of difficult for me now because now I'm really interested. 
I'm not interested in being a project manager because I I just think, you know, that I'll get really bored. But if you can do something bigger, you can come back to the table and entice me and, and position, you know, something in front of me that that meets my thirst and, you know, quenches my thirst. Then let's keep it. Let's keep the conversation open. I'm just going to remain open here. We spent the better part of a year kind of just volleying back and forth, talking, you know, him asking for advice here or there. What do you think about this? We've got this project there, you know, really just very friendly, open conversation. That's a great, just a great thing to pause on for a moment is just this ability to not have to make a decision about that right away and not being forced into into something when you haven't had those that dating period right and so like that's kind of what i'm drawing the analogy to with this back and forth for a year right is is kind of like let's do a, a series of dates and let's let's get to know each other and have these conversations and talk about the dreams and talk and, and over that period of time it things come out right like it just naturally goes one way or the other and it sounds like it went positively but it was it's such a crucial kind of gestational period for a new relationship, especially when you're thinking about doing something completely, well, maybe not completely differently, but differently than you've ever done before. And even op- opening the other party up to new opportunities, like you said, like you didn't just want to take the one job, the PM that he was offering, but it's like, no, I want to do something different. I want to do something bigger. And and then that gets their gears turning right and this back and forth really becomes a a process of ideation and brainstorming and what if potential you know all the while we're negotiating with each other right um and and i said you know look here's what i'm gonna do um i'm really interested in this And, and i think you know in the early conversations with him i began to realize that a lot of my skill set and my true natural given talents were more akin to the owner's rep role than the builder. And, and in chatting with him and talking, I said, well, I'm so interested in this. Here's what I'm going to do as, as, as my investment in peak projects before I'm even invested in peak projects, I'm going to hire an attorney and I'm going to pay for my attorney to do this negotiation to create what will become the framework for peak projects, you know, moving forward to grow and expand. So, so it was like, look, this is a great company. Peak projects has been around for seven years, but it was just, we're just growing, you know, we're we're no longer the sophomore or the freshman or really the junior, you know, Grant had been in, in the private family office world doing what we do now, but was just for two families. And, you know, I think when that those families slowed down and stopped acquiring and stopped purchasing and expanding, I honestly, you know, Grant may not mention or, or admit to this, but I think he got bored. And he's like, I want to start doing more of this and start keep keep expanding and keep growing. And so so he started Peak Projects, you know, eight years ago now. And, you know, I just said, look, um, with my with my experience, I, I want to bring all of the gifts that I have to the table. in in concert with you, not just my understanding of the built environment and how to navigate relationships and projects, but how we can make this organization something bigger than both of us. Um, And he was 
very receptive and always open to, to that. You know, Grant is just a true collaborator. And so, so it was a great experience. And finally, you know, we, we came to an agreement on paper and I said, okay, let's go skiing. <laughs> Cause you know, a lot of this speed dating or, or not even speed dating was over the phone call or text or zoom. And we hadn't met in person. So we, we went skiing together for a weekend and, uh, it was great. Um, it was really great. And even in that experience, we were like, you know, we should do an offsite every year with all of our employees and take them skiing and, and do team building and, and, you know, make an ethos in a company and a feeling in an organization that yes, we're here and we're working and the projects are difficult and the clients sometimes are difficult and, you know, the hours can be difficult, but if we know one another in an organization that is spread out, but we get a chance to become friends with the other people we're working with, it will create something again that's bigger than us. And we had our first offsite this this past year, and it was great. It was it was really great. So so I joined up with Peak. Um, I pulled over a few clients that I was working as a project executive with uh, JD Group. The clients retained me and said, "Well, you 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 can't go anywhere." You know, you have to, you have to finish our project. <laughs> so I was grateful for that. And then I've, I've picked up a few other clients with Grant and, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a great organization. There's 18, 18 team members now. Um, we've got 45 projects across North America. I think we're managing close to $500 million worth of work or just really fortunate. So that's where we are t- today. Evan, there we um, are. I know it was we got there. A roundabout way. Of no, I, that's there. the long digressions are encouraged, as we say. Let's take a quick break to share more about our sponsors. Arc IT. One of the things I really got out of the conversation that I had with Boris, the CEO of Arc IT, was that they are dedicated to the design community. They have three guiding principles listed on the front page of their website, and I wanted to dig in for a moment into those. The first one is that they are committed to being the expert. You've hired them to understand their business and to make the best IT decisions for you. So when you work with Arc IT, you will only work with industry-experienced IT professionals. The second guiding principle is that they are responsive. They understand that in the architecture and design world, deadlines are everything. If you have an issue and you have a deadline coming up, they'll find a solution. And the third guiding principle is that they are proactive. They'll always make sure that your systems are up to date so unplanned issues won't come up, as well as meet with you regularly to explain new technology advances within the industry. So, as business owners and architects, how often do we think about our IT provider? Typically, only when things go wrong. And for many of us, unfortunately, this happens too often, especially with the latest emphasis on remote work. ArcIT, however, is a very different kind of company. They specialize in serving architecture, design, and engineering firms, and their goal is to help you use technology as a competitive advantage. This means that they understand your technology stack, and they won't waste your time and money learning how your tools work within your process. Combine that with industry-leading response times, proactive remote hardware management, and solid disaster recovery and backup solutions. That's something that everybody should be thinking of, honestly. And enterprise-grade security management. And yet, above all, these are just table stakes for a solid IT company. ArcIT goes a step further 
they become your strategic partner when it comes to planning, budgeting, and integrating new technology into your business processes. So all of this sounds expensive, right? Nope, because Arc IT is highly specialized for our industry. Their pricing is on par or in some cases even lower than other IT providers. Arc IT is transparent and even publishes the pricing right on their website. Uh, speaking of their website, there's also something else you should check out when you're there, and that is their Design Under Influence blog and video series. Again, adding value to IT-type solutions across industry, all good stuff. So your business deserves a competent, responsive, and proactive IT partner. Reach out to my friends at Arc IT for a free consultation. So go to GetArcIT, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com, arc-like architecture in the middle, and click Work With Us. In this podcast, I talk a lot about all the realities with my guests, you know, mixed reality, augmented reality, virtual reality, all the realities. And I've got a new message for you from my friends at Avail. Let's talk about the new reality, which is that content, as I've talked about in the previous message from them, both wants and needs to live everywhere. Long gone are the days of saving files to your local hard drive or to a single on-premises server. In order to solve remote collaboration, information has moved to the edge. The cloud is king. And the number of cloud services out there dictate that the number of storage locations will continue to grow dramatically. Where do you store your files? BIM 360, OneDrive, SharePoint, Box, Dropbox, AWS, Azure. Chances are you probably save them in some weird combination of those that I just mentioned and more. Well, here's the point of this message. Avail hides the complexity of where content and information resides. What file to use used to be your biggest concern. Now it's where do all those files live. Avail takes where out of the equation, which means that with Avail, you can actually find your mission critical and not so critical files too, right when you need them. Avail helps get you the information you need faster. Go to getavail.com today to learn more. Systems and standard operating procedures. You already know that's how to build a profitable business and find the freedom you want. You need systems and procedures. But you struggle with choosing the systems you need most and how to implement those systems quickly so you can get back to doing what you love most. The Designing Your Business Masterclass series was created by an acclaimed architect and business consultant, Douglas Teeger, FAIA, to help fellow architects and engineers run their firms more profitably while maintaining a healthy work-life balance. Douglas grew from a solo practitioner to become managing partner of his 30-plus person firm and then later sold his firm so he can do what he does today, helping architects be more successful at Tiger Consulting. On the third Wednesday of every month, Douglas dives deep into an essential topic that will strengthen the profitability of your firm and make it sustainable for growth in the years to come. Register now for the Designing Your Business Masterclass with Douglas Teeger at bqe.com slash masterclass and start implementing powerful systems for the profitability you need and the freedom you want. Every live masterclass session includes AIA continuing education credit. And when you visit bqe.com slash masterclass, you'll have access to the full library of past sessions on demand. 
that Designing Your Business Masterclass is free and is brought to you by our friends at BQE, the makers of BQE Core, the software that makes it easy to manage your projects and people for maximum productivity and ultimate profitability. Register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass at bqe.com slash masterclass. That's bqe.com slash masterclass. And now let's get back to our conversation. It's interesting to kind of think about the building industry as this big puzzle and what this part of that puzzle is. So maybe you can define what being an owner's rep really is. And I think this is where we start to get into the territory of the gray area of there's so much going on here, right? It's part psychologist, like you've said, it's part Switzerland, like being this neutral facilitator, this neutral territory between various parties on the in the job. So maybe you can just start off and define owner's rep. Yeah, it's such a an interesting role. Um, and as a contractor, I had worked with a number of different owner's reps. I think also, real real quick, also, I think, think about this as you're describing this, because like, how did this niche come out? Like, where did that come from? And I, I'm sure there's a void there. And it's like, this is a business opportunity. Maybe Grant saw this, you saw this, but like that it's because there is a void also in, in the, in the process. Yes. Um, so my understanding of where the owner's representative originated and, and, you know, I've done research on it. There's not really like a, it's not in the encyclopedia anywhere. Like this is where the owner's rep started in this country or that country. What my understanding of it is that the owner's rep started as a quantity surveyor or a cost engineer, right? And, you know, was much more in the commercial world and not in the residential world. And, you know, was managing a $50 million, you know, commercial building. And the owner's representative or cost engineer was there to ensure the project stayed on schedule and on budget and had uh, an immense knowledge of insights from the material, you know, purchasing and and actual construction means and methods and ways um, and was just constantly on site or or looking at the project on behalf of, of the client from a cost and time perspective. So I think that's kind of where the owner's rep role began at least that's my understanding of it and and if i'm incorrect i'm i'm you know i'm more than happy to learn more around it this is just where my research has led me i think what it has evolved to over time is different there there are still owners reps who are succinctly schedule and cost and, you know, they, they focus very heavily on that. And that is inevitably something that we focus on as well, a macro budget, a macro schedule, ensuring that the client understands, here's really the time that you're going to take. And here is really the investment that you're going to make. It's like time, it's expectations, and it's, you're basically an interpreter of the built environment because they can't be, they, they can't dive deep because they've got other businesses to run and things to do and and how could they right so and i think a lot of times we in the building industry are so used to talking with our vocabulary just like any any industry is like they've all got their own that that we it's hard to see the forest through the trees because we're so caught up into it and so how do this is something as a designer i dealt with 
all the time, which is how do you communicate effectively so that somebody can truly understand what you're talking about? It could be visual, it could be experiential, but it could also be just completely dropping the jargon <laughs> and talking to them like they're five without treating them like they're five, right? That is, that is very astute and very wise. I think, you know, we all get so much into what we're doing. And even I, I tell my team members now, you know, we, we send out a weekly update to our clients every week and it really gives them a snapshot of what's going on with their project. And look, some of our, our patrons have three, four, five, six projects going on at once, right? And we're managing them for, for, for four or five years, right? And you really have to keep the client or the, the patron or the, you know, the investor involved and and engaged because if they're not then they may lose interest the project stalls you know the project stalls they become frustrated all of the the you know risk for a project and the project team relies on them for decisions right so and if they don't precisely. make the decisions then then it gets to that stalling and yeah like you're talking about precisely so you know we send out the weekly update and and we keep them in the mix and and really you know, trying to keep them enjoying the process and putting joy into the process from the owner's perspective is immensely important. But my team members, I talked to them and we're doing a weekly update review just yesterday and, you know, SEO, OCO, da-da-da, 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 all of the jargon, right? <laughs> all the and acronyms, like, hey, yeah. All of the acronyms. Hey, I understand that we put these in there, but we need to de-acronym, like we cannot have so many acronyms in here because it's just not as easy to understand as we need to make it, you know, and, and taking that extra two minutes, right. Just when the client reads their executive summary for us as to what's going on on their $30 million project is more digestible for them. So they're therefore enjoying the process more. Yeah. Right. It makes it too hard. They just tune out. Yeah. Don't have time for that. Yeah. And, and that, you know, that I've, I've, you know, I'm sure you've had it happen too. I bring up the the fan analogy or the sports court analogy. You'll be meeting with a client on site with the contractor, the mechanical engineer, the structural engineer, the architect, and the designer. And we're at this massive point in the project where, you know, we really need to figure out how to integrate the mechanical with the structural in this specific room. And it's very complex and, you know, it, it's requiring all of the brain trust to really be open to discuss it and to describe what their issues are and to describe what their impediments are. And the client will be sitting there and, you know, you've got the structural engineer and he's saying it to the contractor and they're kind of saying the same thing, but they're not exactly aligned yet. And we're getting so close. And then the client says, well, what about the fan in, in the primary suite, you know? Did we figure out what the fan is <laughs> yeah. going? Squirrel. And, yeah, and it's like, oh, um, and every and it, and it happens all the time, right? Not right now, and, client. <laughs> well, well, what it is, what I've what I have come to realize is that when the client does that, it is an opportunity for the entire team because they are. It's a lifeline. It's insight. Yeah, totally. You, it's an insightful. I, d point. I don't get it. I don't understand. Mm -hmm. You guys are talking about this and it's way above my head. So I'm grasping for something that I can comprehend. I'm grasping for something that, that makes sense to me, right? It's, it's probably why 
our clients have an easier time communicating with interior designers versus architects because the architects are so much more conceptual. And the, the designer is like, this is the fabric we're going to use on the couch. And it's so it's, it's, I look at it as, you know, this opportunity for, for me, especially now to, to give the, the patron to all of us, the patience and the time to be curious, to understand how they understand things. And when they ask those kinds of questions, as frustrating as I understand it to be, because we were so close, everyone was so close, and then the curveball is thrown in, and you know that, that magic point, right, that we were just about to get to in how to create it, you know, how to take it from concept to creation, we're so close. But now, instead of looking at the, the owner and their what seems to the entire construction team a silly question, is like, okay, well, let's, let's then I'll start asking more foolish questions, if you will, about the structure, about the HVAC, about how the, the construction details, what they mean, about how the assemblies go together, what that means for the finish, you know. Just go back to being a beginner again right? And not being afraid to be a beginner in a room full of brilliant minds, you know? And, and doing that on behalf of a client is such a gift for me because I get to be the beginner in the room and ask silly questions and ask the questions that help them understand. It helps, helps them not be that person too. Because that could be that could totally turn into a train wreck. So I can see the the value in that. Precisely. So that's helping set their expectation. It's helping narrow that gap that we talked about earlier from understanding the concept to creation to to the final products. And helping them understand how because the gap is is in between the gap is in between, right? In concept. Now we have the tools to show them the concept, especially in 3D rendering, photorealistic renderings, all the software, the tools are now there, but it's the, that creation moment that they're just not quite comprehending. Like, well, why, why does it take that long? I don't understand. Right. So it's helping, it's, it's helping them understand and comprehend the complexities of construction in a simple way that doesn't demean them for not understanding. But the depth is what is so intriguing to me, right? This, and and it's not difficult to get there, but there's this, you have this desire to, okay, so I guess this all goes back to where we started, which was this idea of being this neutrality figure in the room and being able to take on the burden of being the beginner again. So that on the behalf of, right, you're, you're very much like an avatar for the owner in that circumstance so that they, they can save face and not be the beginner, even though, I mean, it's, it's obvious that you're doing it for them. But it's, it's really interesting psychology going on in, the, in this process. And it, that, to me, is what's so fascinating about it all. For sure. And, and it's also understanding the psychology of the architect and the, the designer and, and understanding, you know, I was talking to a very talented landscape architect just yesterday and he's like, I just don't understand. They are hiring me 
or all of my experience and how I look at things and how I see things. And they're always trying to shoehorn in. They want to tell me what to do. This is that famous Frank Gary, you know, holding up the middle finger to the crowd, <laughs> which was, <laughs> yes, right. Why, why do you hire me? And then, then want to tell me what to do. Yeah. Yes. The ego, um, the so ego is big. It's big. And, and so it's, it's, you know, it's also reminding the design team, you know, they are your patron, right? And the push and pull in their perspective and your perspective, you it may pull more to your polarity than theirs, right? But if you are open and you look at their wanting instead of to shoehorn, but to share what they're thinking and feeling and, and what this design makes them think and feel, just maybe if you look at it as an opportunity instead of something adversarial then you can take that and make something that's even greater. And and as a designer or an architect, you can expand and grow and become more enlightened. And this is the process of, are the difference between art and architecture, honestly, is the utility of it and the actual use by the real people in the end product. And so you designers should not get hired just to provide an art, right? potentially is inhabitable right without any input because that's that's the whole point right that's right so i think you know uh there's to me there's kind of three in my experience and the categories may grow but owners reps kind of fall into three different categories you have the cost engineer or slash the just i call them the justifier right the justifier is there to justify their existence on the project. <laughs> yes. I'm going to negotiate this person down. I'm going to take this point off of this guy. I'm going to do this on that. I'm going to say that it needs to be at this cost. Now my fee is basically offset plus some so I can continue to be here. There's no way the client's going to fire me because I just saved them all this money and it's even you know, more than my fee. And that's just in my opinion, a, a bad way to approach things. Because what that does to the entire team is it, it makes them not want to work on that project. It makes the frequency of the work that they're putting in place less joyful. It, it makes the experience that they're having in the work that they do less enlightened. I've been through that value engineering process so many times during design and it is a serious morale killer right it is it is and, and value engineering is you know there, there's there's also again it's looking at some of those things as an opportunity value engineering i think is an opportunity to be creative and inventive right and the american spirit lends itself to that very much right so value engineering, I think, falls in a slightly different category, but can, if you don't approach it the right way, can truly kill a project morale. And project morale is just immensely important. So the justifier kills project morale and the project suffers and the end result suffers. And, and it, it may sound a little crazy, but I would go as far as to say the feeling when you're in that space doesn't feel as good. I absolutely agree. So that's the one. Then you have the half truth. The half truth owner's rep is like Superman. They get the straight from the contractor. They get the whole story from the architect. They get the whole story from the designer. They get the whole story from the structural engineer. They're very good at understanding 
all that's going on on the project. They only give the contractor half of the story from the architect and the architect half of the story from the contractor. And magically, in all of these meetings, they are always the only one with a solution. Yeah, the manipulator. Yep. Yes. Mm. Yes. Mm. And and that I would say is also and and they're there, you know, they're the the two roles are closely related, right? But they're there instead of just creating a harmonious, you know, flow, if you will, and a true collaborative place to come and work. It's they're manipulating that feeling. They're manipulating the art form of what we're all here to do. And that is a dangerous thing. And, you know, I was I was talking to a, a good friend of mine, a designer yesterday, and she said, you know, we have this big meeting tomorrow. I'm not really looking forward to it. And the owner's rep has to tell the client that we're not going to finish till December and they're supposed to finish in August. And I said, well, how long has the owner's rep known that this is going to happen? And she says, oh, three or four months. And I said, that's terrible. That's terrible. You know, I was like, you know, I don't want to, I don't, <laughs> I'm not saying I need the work because I'm very busy, but you should tell the owner to fire them because part of what an owner's rep does is consistently sets realistic expectations with the client. Because as soon as the expectations no longer align with reality, the bigger that gap gets, the more frustrated the client gets, the less joy they bring to the project. Right. Right. Yep. So, so that's, and then, then there's, then there's the peak way. And the peak ethos. And there are other firms out there that that I think do the same thing. But it's really just coming to the table and checking our ego at the door and working as a true collaborator. And sometimes that means understanding what's wrong with the designer or what's going on in their personal life as to how that's affecting their work and how you know we can get them to do what we need them to do for this project and the client right? Sometimes it's, it's understanding that the superintendent on site, like his son just went to the hospital because he had this, that, or the other, and it's being empathetic and, and seeking to understand and remaining curious about the entire team and not falling into the, the patterns and rhythms that we've all fallen into time and time again, where we go to work and we get frustrated because we're not getting exactly what we need when we need it. And it's being more empathetic to the other stakeholder who's working with us and knowing that they have their own life experiences and everything that's going on in their life as they approach their work. Yeah. I think there's, there's a couple of things that come to mind when you, when you say that. And one is always giving someone the benefit of the doubt, right? First, that's where you start. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and just being able to, to, like you're saying, empathy, right? Have like look at your look at your own life look at all of the other things that are happening at the same time well yeah that's absolutely happening to every single person on the planet also in a very different way and so just being able to have that perspective and bring that to the table um, when a problem or a some circumstance arises to be open to the possibility that there's other influences happening then that's a, a huge advantage to start from rather than a judgmental one. Yes. Yes. It, it prevents defensiveness. And, and I think what, what folks don't understand and sometimes, or they understand, but they forget, we all forget, right? Is that defense 
is usually met with defense and an openness and a yearning and a curiosity is often met with the counter, right? So, so really approaching a project and a team from look, the, the money and the time and the schedule and the deliverables and the weekly updates and accounting for everything that's going on and making sure that the process is in place and the change orders are signed by the client. And the client understands why the change order needed to be signed and why the contractor or why the architect is not wrong in doing this and why they're not trying to get you. You know, it's just like, those are all parts of it. And those we do very well. And I would say the best in the industry, the processes that we have in place, make sure that those things are done well. But I think what, what really is important in a good owner's rep, what we look for at peak when we hire someone, we only hire like 10 to 15% of, of people that we recruit. We're really looking for someone who, who is just well-rounded in construction and is a genius in their right in construction and understands the nuances of the built environment, but also can be open and, and you know, can kind of, in a way, seek enlightenment in this experience and not start to close down and not start to get stuck in patterns, but be sensitive and empathetic to the additional collaborators and, and working on behalf of the other collaborators, not just the client, but on behalf of, of the collaborators to ensure that the work that they're bringing to the table is the most joyous work and that they are putting the most joy into their work. And inevitably, every project, you know, you, you can't have a perfect team every time. And there will be the, the challenges for each project that we will constantly work with. And I think, you know, it's, it's always about working with. Because these clients that, that we're servicing are very busy, very wealthy very guarded, very specific. And sometimes we'll get an advisor for the client who is the uncle or the cousin or whomever it is. And you see the design team kind of glaze over and roll their eyes when they ask a question. And, you know, I think that's just foolish for a number of reasons because, you know, we had talked about it before, Evan. My goal is always to become the most trusted advisor with a client. And sometimes you're getting an advisor to the client who doesn't necessarily understand our world, but guess what? That client, that patron, they really trust them. They, they respect their opinion. They want to hear their opinion. So instead of pushing away that advisor, it's working with them. It's looking, it's looking at them as an opportunity to learn, to grow. You know, maybe they are a, a crazy person and they know nothing and they're just causing all kinds of friction and challenge. But even in that, there's a lesson to learn, you know, even, even in understanding that they're supposed to be at the table and we shouldn't push them out. We should work to include them. We should work to make this a truly collaborative environment that's healthy and safe for people to come with foolish questions. Yeah. That's where learning happens. You were talking earlier about this idea of, of you know the owner's rep as, as basically as an advocate and you said it a minute ago and my gears were kind of turning on this as before you were saying it and and you totally confirmed it which and i think it bears repeating 
you're not just an advocate for the owner. You're an advocate for everybody on the team to do their best work, right? And that is really an interesting point of view. And I think that that really does lead to this battle for the the title of trusted advisor, which I, I see... I see from lots of different angles. We see a lot of architects who want to be their client's trusted advisor. There's a lot of uh, thought leadership out there on that um, that topic. I see it from building product manufacturers in my line of work, right? They want to be the trusted advisor for the design team when it comes to their products and their assemblies and things like that. But when it ultimately kind of comes to all these pieces working together in harmony because they're all valuable pieces of the puzzle to deliver the actual project for the client, which includes the owner into this whole process, that's the glue that you're talking about being the quote unquote owner's rep, the quote unquote Switzerland neutral facilitator sitting in the middle of all of this and interpreting it for different people because they have different vocabularies and you have the understanding of the construction side and the design side and the owner's side. I mean, that really does kind of all fit together neatly into this idea of trusted advisor. Yeah. And, and I think I never want to be in a position or on a team where the architect is not also a trusted advisor and where the builder is not also a trusted advisor because good teams, right? In, in corporations, in, in sports, in whatever, you know, venue or avenue, good teams have lots of good collaborators coming to the table and playing to each other's strengths and weaknesses, right? Understanding the strengths and weaknesses of the team and then playing to those and being okay and, and admitting that you have these weaknesses, right? So I never want when a client starts to to question things to a point and the trust is degraded with a contractor, designer, architect, or consultant, it is very dangerous for a project because once trust starts to erode, you have to stop it immediately and you have to nip it and you have to be direct about it. You know, I, I have very awkward conversations with clients and consultants. But because I hear from a client, I'm just not sure I trust them on this. It's like, wait a second, wait a second, red flag. Let's let's we can't let this cancer grow. We have to we have to have an awkward conversation, but the awkward conversation is going to save a lot of heartache later. So I never want a client to look at me as the only trusted advisor. I want them to look at me as the the most trusted advisor because I can in intake and synthesize what all of their other advisors are thinking and give them a good synopsis and give them a good understanding. Right. That's huge. That's huge. And that builds trust also between everybody. If you're really there trying to work on the behalf of keeping things moving in the right direction, not allowing these things to build up inside so that they can explode to the outside at some later point because they've, they've just boiled over. That's huge. No, that's, that's a huge. It's bad. That's bad for everybody, you know. Uh, and I always, I always, you know, describe to to teams, right? Like, hey, listen, this patron has hired a you know thirty piece orchestra, and you're all instruments, and and they have bestowed upon me the responsibility of being the conductor, and I am grateful for this opportunity. I am, 
you know, hoping that I can give you all very good direction and insight and work well with all of you. I am infallible. I will make mistakes. We all will. It's okay. We have our internal processes that we know work. Let's stick to those. Let's, let's keep our best practices in place. The horse trading that goes on behind the scenes for me, I don't need, I don't need a client to understand that, that you know, this designer is fighting to get this skylight and this stairwell. And the architect is like, well, I think that the, you know, the extra window in the primary suite is more important, right? I don't need a client to sit in on that kind of argument slash conversation. You know, I just need them to, to understand, like, there's a push here and there's a pull here. What's more important to you, right? They're both making very valid points, but I just always convey to the design teams in specific, and you get a lot of, or you can get friction between an interior design firm and an architect. And, you know, I have one client specific and, you know, I, I just, I just kind of told them, I was like, look, that you're, you guys are in North America and you're in, you know, London. So I don't want the client ever hearing like, well, I don't have this from them, so I can't do it. Hmm. Or this isn't done yet, so I can't get it finished. I was like, we can have that internal dialogue, and I will help keep your your design partners in this. You know, I will hold them to account, and I'm always firm and fair. You know, hey Evan, I know that you've got this this deliverable that's done. You know, you said early next week. What does that mean? Is that end of day Monday? Is that end of day Tuesday? Or does that mean Wednesday morning? What's most realistic for you, right? Help me understand what's realistic for you. So, so I can set that expectation with our patron and keep them enjoying the process and keep everybody playing well together. You don't want to, you want to avoid the finger pointing <laughs> because that's just, it, that's, it's nasty. It's, it's bad for everybody. It's bad for everybody. You know, and the, and the end goal is to have a project that ends well and is beautiful and God willing, a client who wants to bring the same team on to do something else again. And finger pointing kills that. I have, a, I have a silly question for you. You use the word patron, and I'm wondering why you've chosen to use that word instead of customer or client or anything else. Well, I am a steward to to my my patron's money. Mm. It does have kind of a fiduciary aspect to the word. Yeah. And, and I look at, you know customer client this this is way bigger than that you know i am fortunate enough to work on pieces of art with teams of artists artisans craftsmen designers architects you know two and three or four hundred people deep right these projects are one of a kind very difficult intricate projects and at the end of the day the word that i think most de describes the owner that I am representing is a patron and, and they are a patron to our art form. And, you know, while I may not be the artist in putting the stone in place or the artist in drawing how the stone goes in place, uh, my art form is facilitating and communicating and making sure that we're all just working harmoniously together for our patron. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I, I love that. I, I love that you have thought about that and, and that that's uh, intentional 
it was it was a hard thing. It was one of the hardest things for me moving from being the builder to being the owner's rep. You know, is something that I really reflected on long and hard. I was nervous about, you know, when you're the builder, you really understand and know, and you get to take a lot of credit because you're doing a lot of the work, right? And and now I'm I get to take less credit in a way. But the credit I get is is that when a project that I'm on runs well, it almost seems like I'm doing nothing at all. And in fact, we've had clients that we've set up a project team and we've been so open and transparent with them. And we share all of our deliverables and the forms and the ways and the means in which we do it. That some some folks are like, I, I can I got this. I can do what you guys are doing. I got it. You know, thank you so much. And Sometimes they call us back up later. Sometimes they, you know, they go through the the project and finish and are successful. That's a win for us, right? Sometimes we protect a patron in the sense of, I want to buy this piece of property. I want to build this house. Someone told me, my friend told me that they built their house for $1,200 a square foot or $1,400 a square foot, whatever it is. And I want to do it with this architect and this landscape architect and this designer. Okay, well that designer is like $2,000 a square foot and you haven't included any of your soft costs or your FF&E or any of your landscaping costs. So the $10 million house that you were just thinking about building, it's more like $17 million when we're all said and done out the door and we've killed projects, you know, where a client is like, that's, that's, which is also too big, (laughs) which is a, which is a win for us, which is a win for us. You know, it's, you have the wrong expectations. It's going to go that way all the way through and it's going to be bad. Yeah. 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 So, so it's a, it's a gift that we get to, to come and, and work on the projects we do with the teams that we do. And I'm just immensely grateful. And I, I do use the word patron because I feel like they're patronizing me. They're giving me this, this gift to, to work on things that, um, are just immense opportunities to learn and grow and create something where there was nothing. Well, I I really appreciate the insight into this. And I definitely have a new appreciation for this piece of the puzzle that uh, obviously it's not utilized on every project across the board, but this is definitely one of those things where when you know it exists, now you can ask for it. You can be an advocate for this kind of facilitative process so that you have a team player of many teams that is working toward the success of a project. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Keith, where can people find out more about what you guys are doing at Peak Projects? Where can they follow you guys online, get in touch with you, anything that you want to put out there to the audience? Yeah. um, I mean, peakprojects.com is a great place to start. Most of our clients do do retain us under a non-disclosure agreement, so we can't really per se chat about specific clients or specific projects. But there is information on the site about our team and you know the background and the history of of Peak Projects, and uh, I think we've also got a LinkedIn page, um, so you you can check us out there. Um, and you know any any of your listeners are free to email me. It's just Keith at peakprojects.com. If you ever just want to talk, you know, we're happy to help. A lot of times we'll get a call from an architect and they're like, Hey, I've got this issue with this client. What do you think? And it's a 10 or 15 minute 
oh, that's interesting. Here's how, here's how I would approach that. Right. So we're just open to help. Um, and you know, if, if you want to do it more the traditional way, just hop on the website and send us an email and we're, we're happy to help out with any project or question or just have an intelligent conversation with a like-minded collaborator. Awesome. Well, I'll include links to all those in the show notes for this episode. And Keith, thanks for taking the time to have this conversation today. I think it was, it's very valuable. And so I appreciate the work that you are doing and the piece, the lane that you've chosen to, I guess, you know, go down and, and be a part of this, this industry. It's, it's really intriguing. Yeah. Thanks, Evan. It's, it's really been a pleasure. Super appreciate your time and, and your perspectives as well. Thanks for listening to the Troxel Podcast. And once again, I would like to thank Arc IT for sponsoring this episode. Visit their website at getarcit, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com. Thank you to Avail for their support of this podcast episode. Visit getavail.com to see their holistic approach to content management today. Thank you to BQE, the makers of BQE Core, for their support of this podcast episode. Visit bqe.com slash masterclass to register for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A dot com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out. And of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you. So leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E Troxel. Talk to you soon.